This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. Where are you right now? You're in Iran. Yes, I am in Esfahan, which is the third largest city of Iran. And uh, this is the city I was born and raised in. How is the information war currently treating you? Uh, actually, we're they're giving us some break finally after, uh, I would say, like three, four months of very intensive information war which uh, living in Iran, uh, like uh, a lot of Iranians would find it very ridiculous and something to laugh at because it was so different from the realities on the ground. Uh, but I can imagine that a lot of people in the West uh, were believing it because they didn't have access to any other source of information. Uh, but now it's, uh, it's gradually a little bit uh, becoming less intensified, I would say, because of because a lot of these people who or some of these people who were uh, the soldiers of this um, information war against Iran are now backing off because their project failed. And uh, it looks like either their fundings were caught or they're preparing for another round sometime in the future. I did my BA in uh, English translation and I worked as a translator and interpreter for many years. And that's how I got to uh, meet a lot of people coming to Iran uh, or online from the West. And I realized uh, how uh, there was an intensive information war against Iran, even when the internet and like social media was not trending as much as it is now. Uh, so it became some form of a, like, it was a passion for me to talk to people. I mean, at that time it was tourists who visited uh, my city and, uh, I wanted to talk to them and see like uh, what were the misconceptions that they had about Iran and how did that uh, change when they visited Iran. Then I became very interested in politics and I did my master's in Middle Eastern studies and my PhD in North American studies. Uh, and I graduated uh, about three years ago and ever since I've been uh, doing uh, re uh, research and uh, a little bit of teaching and also sometimes uh, writing. And um, just recently, less than a year ago, I also started a YouTube channel because the information war on Iran uh, started to be very crazy and I felt there are not many sources of information in English on Iran. And uh, so I wanted to talk to people as an independent journalist and offer a different perspective on the ground. You mentioned North American studies. Now, when I chat to people in the West, they often talk about Middle Eastern studies. I've never heard of North American studies. What is that? Well, the department that I studied in at the University of Tehran, there's they have like this American studies uh, department and there are two different branches, which is uh, Latin American studies and North American studies, which basically focuses on the study of the US, but also Canada. And uh, yeah, basically, I mean, we consider Mexico as a part, but because the language is different, it is often associated with Latin America. Uh, so uh, it's an inter interdisciplinary uh, major that I studied and uh, uh, people choose their area of focus based on their own interest. For example, my uh, dissertation was mostly about uh, the rhetoric of social movements in the U.S. and uh, especially African-American movements. 
uh, and uh, a little bit of propaganda analysis as well. Why is Iran hated by the West? Well, I would say uh, after we had the popular revolution in 1979, uh, the U.S. Uh, lost its grasp, uh, the U.S. and the U.K., of course, lost their grasp on the on Iran, and uh, they could no longer plunder the oil, and they could no longer uh, run Iran as a client state, as, an, as a puppet state that would... Uh, just uh, implement whatever the U.S. wanted. So that's how the information war at that time started uh, against Iran. But obviously, uh, back then, there was not uh, as many, uh, I mean, there, the social media and the internet was not uh, present at that time. So you couldn't see that much uh, information coming. It was more of a one-sided uh, like information coming from the U.S. about Iran, and there was almost uh, little or next to zero coming from inside Iran to offer a different perspective, especially that we went through uh, a U.S.-backed war, uh, which Saddam imposed on uh, our country for eight years right after the revolution. And then we also we're under uh, crippling sanctions ever since the revolution we have been. There are new rounds of sanctions coming, uh, and but now Iran is a lot stronger in many ways. And mm, so there is at the internet and there are also people who inside Iran that want to uh, just uh, show that normal life is going on here. And the, the, the image that you're seeing of Iran is very... Uh, very much distorted, but still it's not a parallel war and I would say there is almost no counter propaganda coming from inside Iran and uh, it's very, very little and not very powerful. But basically, I mean, I would say the reason Iran is uh, hated is one uh, part of it is just the same reason why Russia or China, for example, are hated because they stand to the U.S. in their emerging powers. Um, but in Iran, this is also combined with some form of Islamophobia because the country is a Muslim-majority country. So there are many factors, but I would say uh, Iran's emerging power uh, in the region, in the West Asian region, and Iran's uh, being a Muslim-majority Muslim country uh, are the main factors that play into like seeing this very distorted image of Iran that causes a lot of people around the world, I would say, uh, to hate the country or just to be very ignorant of the country. So it's a combination of geopolitics and culture. Exactly. Um, so I understand the information war, but what's interesting is that we're part of BRICS, and I think Iran wants to be part of BRICS. This is part of a new multipolar emerging order that's starting to appear, and the West, particularly the US and the UK, are, are not happy about this. Obviously. Yeah, that's true. I mean, uh, especially with uh, China and Russia uh, brokering more peace and uh, like rapprochement attempts between the countries inside West Asia and 
and I'm I'm very hopeful that this will expand to Africa and Latin America very soon because we used to have good relations with a lot of countries in uh, Latin America and as well as in uh, Africa. Uh, and I'm hoping that uh, we will see, uh, uh, I mean, we are already seeing the decline of dollar and we're seeing that uh, China and Russia are playing more powerful uh, roles uh, in the global geopolitics and up to now, uh, what we're witnessing is that China and uh, uh, Russia have been working towards rapprochement, uh, unlike what the US and the UK have been working, uh, which was like uh, sowing discord and uh, divide and conquer. So, so far, the policy that we're seeing coming from uh, China and Russia uh, together, of course, with uh, Iran and some other countries in the region, uh, looks that like uh, we're seeing of um, uh, a very like powerful form of uh, uh, multipolar uh, geopolitics emerging. That is that that has the power, I would say, uh, to stand to the U.S. policies and just push the U.S. back outside the region. Obviously, this is going to be a very long process, but. Uh, uh, it has started, and uh, I don't. I, I and it seems like it's very difficult to reverse it at this point. Iran is something of a powerhouse in the Middle East. What is your country's relationship with neighboring countries? Well, uh, we have very friendly relations and ties and uh, trades with. Uh, I would say all of the countries, uh, neighboring countries. Recently, there were there has been some beef with Azerbaijan because there is the Israeli influence in Azerbaijan, and uh, the U.S. and Israel have been trying very hard, working very hard to set Azerbaijan against uh, Armenia and against Iran. There, you you can see that in their rhetoric, and uh, there was actually. I mean, uh, Israel and Azerbaijan also declared a strategic partnership against Iran, which Iran uh, has asked for explanation uh, because Iran is not obviously is not going to allow that to happen. And Iran is um, uh, both strategically in terms of political power, however, a lot stronger than Azerbaijan. So uh, this is not going to happen at any point. Uh, I mean, Iran is not going to allow that to happen. But apart from that, um, despite the differences that has been, and despite uh, like uh, the severing of the relations at some points, with the majority of the countries in the region, we have had good relations, even though, for example, on the issue of Syria, there were differences and difference of uh, opinions with, uh, dif I mean, with countries like Emirates, with Qatar, with uh, Turkey, and with Saudi Arabia. And we didn't have relations with these countries for uh, seven to 11 years. Uh, but Iran continued uh, to support resistant forces inside uh, West Asian region and to support Palestine, even though uh, there were, they did not, they like all these uh, forces and groups did not uh, totally agree on the issue of Syria. Uh, but it looks like we're going back to uh, the friendly relations that we had, we used to have before the uh, crisis in Syria and the occupation in Syria started. Uh, so I'm hoping that this this will be a growing trend, and we will see, especially like with Saudi Arabia and uh, Emirates, where we'll see uh, more like regional alliance and. Um, uh, we will see. I mean, from I mean, uh, I would I would remain skeptical until I see like tangible results of it. But I hope 
we will see that Saudi Arabia begins to realize how it's just detrimental to their own image in the region and their own political power to uh, just basically blindly obey U.S. policies. It's against the interest of their own people and the interest of the uh, like the re- the people and the nations of the region. A myth that has permeated Western culture for, I suppose, decades is that Iran wants to wipe Israel off the map. Yeah, this is, uh, you know, the, well, the, the sentence was first uh, said, and it's, it's a very terrible translation into English, uh, because the actual sentence says that the Zionist uh, uh, entity or the Israeli entity uh, will be will like there will be wiped out it's not like will be erased from the page of the time which is very different from uh like i mean it's not it's not about uh iran having a plan to erase the country it's about what is going to happen because of the resistance and because of uh you know all these there's there's really aggression that is going against Palestinians and the settler colonialism that is going and going on and there will be resistance like the just the, the same way uh, the uh, I mean in some ways similar to what how the apartheid regime in South Africa was eliminated this is going to happen in Palestine so it, and it's very interesting that nobody talks about Iran's proposal to the UN of how to solve the issue of the of Palestine uh, Ayatollah Khamenei the, the leader of the Islamic Republic uh, offered this uh, proposal by many years ago to the UN and it's uh, I mean it's official it's there and everyone can look up that the only way or the only solution to the issue of Palestine is right and outside of Palestine uh, taking part in it and making a decision that uh, if they want to like uh, uh, if they want like uh, what form of government they want and how to treat uh, the like uh, settlers even i mean the jewish settlers are they going to like uh, stay there as palestinian uh, like citizens or i mean whatever that's going to happen but I mean, this is something that nobody talks about, that uh, Iran outlook on Palestine and the way to defeat the Zionist entity uh, is is through uh, uh, like uh, is through a democratic uh, way of I mean, just just the same way that you would oppose any colonialist uh, entity and any uh apartheid uh, colonialist um, settler regime um we don't have a plan to attack israel unless israel dares attack us in any which they don't dare i mean uh even when just a few days ago when uh, hezbollah in response to israeli aggression launched a few missiles from uh, lebanon uh, israel did did not even dare admit that it was hezbollah and they kept saying it was palestinian uh, like uh, resistant forces even though everybody knew it was hezbollah because they know the military power of iran and hezbollah uh, is just so strong and they cannot retaliate um, that so they don't want they don't want to get into a uh, like a full scale um, 
war or conflict with any of these forces. So, um, but no, I, I, at the same time, nobody talks about Israel uh, possessing nuclear weapons. Nobody talks about Israel not being, unlike Iran, a signatory to the NPT. And uh, nobody talks about how Israel and the, the Mossad and uh, US uh, intelligence services worked uh, and proudly assassinated Iranian nuclear scientists. Nobody talks about how, uh, like, uh, yeah, I mean, inside Iran, I mean, this is a uh, this is something that Israel is proudly talking about. It's not something uh, controversial or anything. Like uh, they just take, they brag about how um, they have this culture of assassinating like random people and even nuclear scientists. So yeah, I mean, everything that everything that you hear about Iran-Israel relation is that Iran wants to wipe Israel off uh, the map, but nobody talks about all the aggression that comes, the actual, and then not just rhetoric, the actual aggressions that come from Israel against Iran and Iranian people. You mentioned nuclear, nuclear weapons. And as far as I understand, Iran has not done anything illegal regarding that. Exactly. Yeah, that's true. I mean, the International Atomic Agency verified the peacefulness of Iran's atomic uh, or nuclear activity several times. And it's still because Iran wanted to prove that uh, the program is absolutely peaceful. They uh, started negotiating with the US and the, uh, I mean, the, the P5 plus one countries to uh, you know, come in, and and then we had the nuclear dealer deal or the JCPOA, um, which, according to what Obama uh, confessed and I mean said, was imposed the most rigorous uh, inspection uh, regime on any country on any country's nuclear activity, and Iran accepted that and. Uh, there was actually a lot of criticism inside Iran against the JCPOA because it was while we were negotiating the JCPOA that our nuclear scientists' information were leaked to Israeli agencies and Israel uh, employed MEK terrorists uh, inside Iran to assassinate our nuclear scientists. Uh, but despite all of that, and, and Iran's record of no uh, like attack or hostility against uh, or starting of any aggression against any country, uh, and despite the fact that there is a very strong fatwa or religious decree issued by Iran's leader uh, that uh, uh, forbids the making of, not even using, the making of any nuclear or unconventional weapons, uh, these sanctions on the pretext of Iran's nuclear activity continue to uh, cripple the economy, to uh, create a lot of hardship for Iranian ordinary Iranian citizens. It has become very um, difficult to afford, um, uh, like for example, medicine. A lot of the, um, and, I, and I know there are people who would say, no, these sanctions are not on humanitarian aids. But the thing is, the US extraterritorial and unilateral sanctions have made it very difficult, or they, they punish any country, any company, outside the US even to uh, to have to trade with Iran. For example, there was this Swedish company that produced um, special uh, wound dressing for butterfly disease uh, children children with the butterfly disease, which is a very difficult condition. And they, they refused to sell those bandages to Iran, citing US sanctions. 
this is how the sanctions are working and uh, are affecting you know, ordinary Iranian citizens. It became very difficult, almost impossible for Iran to purchase um, medicine for cancer patients and other uh, types of, types of uh, uh, or medicine for other types of diseases. And nobody is talking about all this. Even the UN Special Rapporteur on Sanctions visited Iran less than a year ago and she was saying how the sanctions are affecting ordinary citizens and how they are illegal and inhuman and leading to the killing and uh, um, like, uh, yeah, I mean, d difficult uh, conditions for ordinary citizens. And nobody is talking about all these things. Despite the sanctions, Iran is not some backward, impoverished country like the media would have you believe. Exactly. You know, uh, because, as I said, since 1979, or maybe a year or less than two years after uh, the revolution, the sanctions on Iran started and they intensified over time and there were new sanctions. So we have learned, I mean, the economy has learned uh, to be self-reliant and we produce a lot of things. And even in sanctions created the impetus and the, uh, like, you know, the urge for the Iranian scientists and uh, researchers to produce a lot of things inside. But while we come to the like mass production or, man or mass manufacturing of uh, those uh, things that uh, we were denied, uh, it takes some time. And during this time, people die. Uh, so, but um, the, the idea is that, I mean, what you see on Western media has the purpose of showing that there is absolutely no normal life going on in Iran anymore. And I have personally seen that in a in crazy, insane levels online. Uh, I knew an Italian and Italian, I mean, online through Twitter, I knew an Italian professor living in, in Iran and he just would post simple pictures of him and his family going to a cafe. And there were trolls on Twitter attacking him for normalizing life. I mean, there is normal life inside Iran. What's wrong with that? That has happened to myself too. I mean, I, I got reported and I just talked on, on one Twitter space and my account was locked for seven days only because I was saying that despite everything that you're hearing, normal life is going on in Iran. It's like, <laughs> you just can't, uh, speak about normal life in Iran. That's like a, a taboo thing to talk about. And it's it's because, you know, you have to dehumanize uh, a nation to justify public opinion if you want to attack them or if you want to impose more sanctions on them. So this is the prelude to more sanctions and to some sort of military uh, action against a nation. And we saw that back uh, with Iraq and with uh, like Kuwait and Iraq and this is and Libya. This is exactly the same way. But uh, Thankfully, so far, it has not been really working with Iran because Iran also has a very strong uh, military capability. And it does appear to me that a lot of people like myself, for example, are realizing that everything that's coming out of Western media is completely upside down and inverted. That's true. That's true. Because, you know, people realize after uh, what they saw in Syria, 
and after what they saw in Russia and Ukraine and, you know, a lot of things. I, I also think and I'm seeing a lot more people are waking up to the lies that they have been to. And even I would say even with uh, the pandemic, the so-called pandemic, there were so many lies going on. And after some time, people wake up and didn't just they realize that they have been lied to and they realize to be skeptical about everything else that they hear about. So if it was before, if it was only the pandemic or if it was only Russia or China. Now it's it begins to be about Iran too, and they have become very skeptical about whatever they hear on Western mainstream media, and they begin to search uh, on their own to see what what exactly in uh, is happening in those places. You know as well as I know that I'm going to get asked to bring up the point about women being oppressed in Iran. Here I'm talking to yes. a woman. How can this be? <laughs> yes. Yeah, you're talking to one of the uh, almost 60% uh, of uh, the like uh, university uh, students and graduates in Iran. So Iran has almost about 60% uh, female students at universities. That must tell you about how oppressed women are here. And uh, obviously, I'm a PhD and I have uh, friends who are, have gone to university and are they either have a master's degree or a PhD and it's very common to see women very active uh, going to universities and uh, having different jobs and we have a lot of uh, we have pilots we have doctors we have engineers architect like Tehran has a very famous beautiful uh, nature it's called nature bridge or tabiat bridge uh, which which was designed by a very young uh, female architect in uh, we have uh, like different uh, national sport team teams, and we have uh, athletes who have won several uh, medals in uh, international competitions. And obviously, nobody's not talking about them. But uh, at the same time, obviously, like any other country, like the world, we also have uh, issues with uh, women's rights. I personally want to see more. Uh, equality, more women's rights, and uh, especially like uh, uh, rights with uh, regards to maybe uh, marriage or uh, yeah, like uh, mainly those things. And it's like we have uh, we have a, a, a parliament where we elect members and they work on uh, like uh, reforming the laws in favor of women. And I mean, it depends on who uh, wins the parliamentary elections but this has been an ongoing debate and we have been able over the past 43 44 years to uh, amend laws in favor of women and sometimes i mean it, it also depends on the dynamics of the society because you need, we need to also understand that iran obviously is not a monolithic society and the majority are still practicing muslim practicing muslims and they want islamic values to be prevalent in the society uh, which doesn't i mean it's not only about hijab or headscarf but a lot of people still wants to wear this headscarf. It's their choice, even though it's also compulsory. And it does not, I mean, I am, uh, I believe that people should be allowed to practice what they believe, um, but you also need to understand how the society uh, wants the governments to act. I would give you an example. Uh, after we had these protests back from September to almost uh, January, uh, and there were, 
a lot of people coming uh, on the streets and it, it started with women issues but very soon it turned into regime change and calling for the government to be toppled and everything and it's and, and i should tell you like for example in my city where i come from and it's a, a relatively or to a great extent a conservative city uh, the protests were very small and insignificant normal life was never uh, interrupted and nothing was closed. You would see restaurants and cafes working and uh, like next to them, there were a group of protesters and protesting uh, against a mandatory hijab or what, of course, that, uh, slogans that started to be about regime change. Um, but in other cities, it, it was very different in different cities and in different parts of the city, actually. Um, but after this happened, the, the conservative part of the society felt that there was a threat against their values. And they were also protesting, coming out on the streets and asking for more restrict, uh, restrictive hijab laws because they wanted, you know, we have to also understand that back in the Pahlavi era, uh, hijab was banned. The first Pahlavi tried to ban hijab and people would be stripped of their hijab. They came uh, on the street and uh, there were actually many Iranians who had to uh, emigrate to uh, Arab countries because they wanted to practice their hijab. So th this, this is in the collective memory of Iranians and they feel this as an attack, as an imperialist uh, plot and an, as an uh, attack on their values. And uh, if there, I mean, this, uh, some of the responses from the government also made it, I, I would say, I would argue that this kind of radicalizes the, uh, the uh, society. There, then you have two groups, a group that don't want the mandatory hijab and they want to come out and make a statement to the government. And then you have a group uh, that, by the way, uh, I would say, I mean, this group that comes out are not the majority, but the, the ones that practice hijab are still at this point the majority, either, even though this is like a declining majority. Uh, so they, they want to be, mm, to, to feel like they are protecting their values. They, they want to show especially to foreign forces that intervenes in these protests that no we're not backing off on our of our values and we're going to protect our values so i think it's very important to take into account all those nuances it's it's not a black and white situation it's a mixture and a combination of a lot of factors as i get older perhaps i appreciate traditional values more and more and particularly when i see how the west is decaying in every sense um, and I guess, unlike America, Iranians know what a woman is. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, we still don't. At, to this point, we don't have an issue identifying <laughs> what what a woman is. And I'm very grateful. And I mean, the society is very grateful for that. Yeah, this is this is something like really far from happening inside Iran because, uh, like, uh, even even those who are not. I mean, I have secular fr friends who are not religious at all and they might not even want to wear the scarf but when it comes to those fa family values and uh, traditions we're unanimously agreeing on the standards the original yeah. uh, standards not the new ones and the thing is uh, I, I i think it's still there is a majority even in the west who wants to protect their families th those family values and standard values but the media does not allow that to happen i mean they're scaring everyone not to talk about it like you would be immediately labeled as whatever uh, they call and uh, like uh, it becomes very difficult to speak up and to say to just reject those 
deviations from family values and uh, yeah i think this is like universal and some yeah societies practice it in slightly differently but those values are universal and it has always been human i mean uh, the the values of any society all throughout uh, life i mean even and this is by the way i think uh, this is kind of uh, uh, a bilateral misconception because uh, like if for example for as someone who has lived all my life here uh, if i look at western media i would think that the majority in the west are going that way and they just don't want uh, like they're, they're, they uh, they all have problems i uh, defining a woman uh, but the act the reality is not that i mean i have friends from the west and i'm ta i talk i mean everyone is complaining but there are not many people who have the courage to speak out and uh, not care about being politically correct or not or um, so but it's also i mean that's why i think uh, f uh, like real connection between humans and uh, uh, societies are, is very important. Like, just do not get your image from any of uh, mainstream medias, whether it is about Iran or the West, uh, and just talk to people who live there and uh, follow them and see what uh, they actually believe. And then you will see that there is a lot that we share and we have, we have a lot in common. As human beings, we, we have a lot in common. I like to explore different cultures, but I personally think I would feel a lot safer to raise my kids uh, here uh, because, um, like, everyone agrees on family values. It's not an issue. Mm. It doesn't matter uh, politically where you come from, if whether you are pro the government or against the government. It's still something that everyone agrees on on family values and how how to define a woman i would say we still not we're not there and i hope we will never be there you know the the thing is uh i think we have to realize that when a society maintains family values uh crime rates and rape rates and murder rates decline too i mean it's it's uh i mean definitely there needs to be laws that protect women that protect families but it's also the culture that protects family units and the society and women uh, for example in iran this is something that i i mean when i was traveling outside iran i that's when I started to realize how important this was because I had taken it for granted. Even now, if I walk down the street at midnight, I never feel unsafe. It's absolutely safe for me. I mean, there might be some parts of the of the uh, like the city that I would feel like I want to go out with someone, even like another woman, not just uh, because I wanted to be like more safe, but. I mean, it, this is like something very normal. Even when I lived in Tehran on my own, I would like uh, travel inside the city and just uh, hang out with my friends until I don't know, like midnight, and there was no problem. And I always thought that this is this is normal. But then I realized, no, that's not. I mean, that's something that is not happening in even a lot of European countries. Like you can't go out when it's uh, and feel absolutely safe when it's dark. So. This is also another thing, and I and I think it's because of those family values, and because there are still fam like people live in families, and they are they're very protective of family values, and which which includes women's and women's rights too. Tell me a little bit about Sharia and the dynamics around that, because as you know, it's always in the media. Yeah. 
Well, yeah, they take the word Sharia as something that is very, like, you know, strange and alien, uh, when Sharia basically means uh, religious laws. And uh, uh, there are many, there are many countries that uh, implement uh, Islamic laws. I mean, Muslim majority countries that implement Islamic laws, but even that is very different because there are different interpretation of the laws. Uh, but Sharia basically means uh, laws that have been uh, like, uh, you know, inferred from uh, from religious text or from the Quran, and that also includes. Uh, uh, like laws regarding women's issues, for example, um, for example, like how a man is responsible to provide for the family, how a man is responsible to uh, protect the family, or how a woman uh, we there is like this is an Islamic Islamic law that a woman's money is her money, and her husband's money is the family's money. So. Like nobody, this is this is something that people don't realize. By like, it's a woman in Iran has the right to spend uh, her money in whatever way he uh, she wants, and the husband has no say on it. I mean, inside family, when you have friendly relationships, you, this is a discussion. But I mean, based on the law, the law protects that and uh, protects women. It also includes uh, laws about uh, like. Um, banning uh, usury and the bank system like how the bank system has to work it includes a lot of things it's just uh and and it, and the interesting point also is the dynamism within sharia as like i told you we have the islamic consultative parliament or just simply we call it majlis or parliament uh which is one of the bodies that decides on the laws and we have been uh reforming the law like there yeah you can it's not like the sharia law is something that is there and cannot be changed it can be changed based on the requirements of the time based on the requirements of the society for example i can give you one example like uh is uh, islam allows men uh, which is like this is something also controversial islam uh, allows men to have four wives this is not common in Iran, and the uh, uh, and the law says that a man can have more than one wife only if the woman, the first wife, allows that. So, like, if you want to register that, you have to have the permission from the first wife. So this is also Sharia law, uh, but it was it was an interpretation because you have to see how it is better for the society, and based on that the laws are uh, drawn and, and that's why there there can be changes within the uh, the laws and they can change over time what is your view on that this is something this is uh, totally unacceptable in my society even though we're practicing muslims it's totally it's i mean i think if if you hear that a, a man uh, has a second wife nobody wants to have relations with that family anymore it's 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 very unacceptable yes in iran it's on very i mean there are some uh cities where it is like um kind of more acceptable but in the majority of the cities it's totally unacceptable in in my relatives and families and extended families i have never seen or heard of anyone uh I mean, I don't personally know anyone with uh, who has had more than one wife. And it's very interesting how the scholars argue is that even the, I, I think 
Yeah, this, what the scholars argue is that anything that may harm your family uh, is illegal, is haram, uh, like religiously forbidden. And that includes having a second wife. So yes, the Islam might say that it, it is allowed, but if you think this is harming your family, like the strength of your family and it is hurting your wife, you're not allowed to do that. Uh, and I think, uh, 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 yeah, I think in in one of the provinces like Sistan Baljasan, where there is a majority Sunni, and uh, this, this, the dynamics of the society there is very different from the rest of the country. I mean, most of the places of the country, um, the women were. I mean, uh, this, the the leader was visiting this uh, city, this in the southeast of Iran, and women were complaining to the leader that their husbands uh, take more than one wife. And he was advising them that you should not do this. This is haram because you're hurting your wife. And again, this is something nobody talks about. So yeah, I mean, Sharia takes the, the requirements uh, and the culture of the society into account too. So uh, like two, two very controversial ones that, I mean, this is another fatwa that nobody talks about. And it's, uh, I think it's very interesting is that uh, Imam Khomeini, the founder of the Islamic Revolution and the Islamic Republic, um, issued a fatwa that allowed uh, gender reassignment surgeries. Because doctors went up to him and explained how there are people who have, like, uh, you know, this is like a biological condition. It's not just a feeling that I want to identify it, whatever. Um, and they explained to him, and he said that, okay, that makes sense. So he issued a fatwa that allowed uh, gender reassignment surgeries. And this is happening inside Iran, and it's considered part, uh, absolutely uh, like legal and even the government uh, subsidizes like if people have financial problems they can get help from the government to do that and uh, just recently like one example uh, recently we had an actress uh, who who is in her who was in her and I should so now say his uh, 50s now and she had a gender assignment surgery and now she or now he appears as a man and everyone knows and he's a practicing muslim too and he talks about how he like uh he feels uh this is uh i mean allowed so the the way the government allows that is that first these people have to receive therapy to make sure this is not like a, because you know there there are people who were for example victims of rape and that's how they develop this feeling of or tendency there are people who had uh, hormone problems, so they receive hormonal therapies. And if none of that works, and they actually really need to uh, to have like uh, gender reassignments, then they go for that. I don't know how. I mean, I I personally don't know how strict these rules are, but uh, I'm pretty sure it's not like you just show up at the doctor and say I need a gender reassignment, and they're going mm -hmm. to immediately do that. This is a very long process that takes a few years. We can't go any further because I am absolutely amused by your your cat playing on playing on. Is it a bed <laughs> or, or a chair or something behind? Yeah, you? that's the yeah that's the bed. Yeah, she wants to be famous too. <laughs> she wants to appear there. She is extremely cute. Yeah. What is Iran's perception of the West? Because we've spoken about the West's perception of Iran. Right. 
well, I would say, I mean, when it comes to politics, uh, there is this, for example, there was this uh, survey by Gallup, I think last year, that showed that 81% of Iranians believe the US is not committed to democracy. So this gives you an idea of how Iranians view the US at least, Fauzin, which is obvious because Iranians understand very well how the sanctions come from the US, unilateral coercive measures, how it is hurting them and how the US is seeking to destabilize the region uh, and uh, you know intervene in uh, uh, other countries' domestic affairs, but when it comes into in term, into like culture and uh, the political system inside Iran that we have, we have it is it is I would say it's a combination of uh, like uh, look we have a constitution that I would say is adopted uh, to an extent from the French constitution, but with Islamic values, and this is how. Um, uh, like we have implemented uh, Islamic laws inside our political system. That's that that I would say is also reflective of the society. You see people, for example, I mean, uh, wearing jeans or adopting uh, a Western style of dressing, but at the same time still being very modest in the way they dress. Like the majority wants to cover most of their bodies. I mean, even the discussion around hijab is mostly about a headscarf and um, there are not many, uh, I mean, they're not, the, the majority still wants to, uh, or, or value being uh, dressed as modestly. So it's like a combination of uh, some sort of uh, maybe Western influence of a culture on, a, on the Iranian culture, but still, um, still pretty much Islamic values are there, even though this is also dynamic and it has changed over time. I mean, the the way people have been practicing modest dressing has uh, changed over time. It had become more relaxed. Uh, like in the past, you would see a lot more people wearing the black chador, which is uh, like a piece of one piece of cloth, black cloth that covers from head to toe. Uh, and I personally like, used to wear that and I felt, I mean, I, even when I went to you know, the university, I wore that. This was something that I really liked to do. And even as a child, it was something that I wanted to grow up so that I could wear this. And this is also, I mean, this is still a part of the culture. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, we have like uh, our picnics are very famous. We have family gatherings. Uh, we have a lot of family gatherings and socializing, uh, which... Uh, Unfortunately, I would say during the two years of the pandemic, uh, because of people, because of the, so much fear that I, I think was really unnecessary, this declined for two years, but it's kind of, we're going kind of back to, I mean, you know, things are have relaxed for more than a year, but it takes some time for people to actually go back to what they were practicing before. But we are also seeing more socializing again, uh, uh, right now we're having the last week of Ramadan and uh, this is also another uh, another month that we where when a lot of socializing and family gathering happen for iftar for the time we break our fast so yeah that's that's I would say um, like a, a very general view of the normal life that goes in Iran that I would say that exists earlier I um, brought up one or two myths that you busted, and I suppose the, 
the penultimate myth is that Iran is this hotbed of terrorists and terrorist activity and terrorism. Ah, yes. <laughs> I don't really, you know, it's, this is something that I always say, like, uh, the US wants Iran to prove that it does not have uh, nuclear weapons, right? They want us to prove a negative. Rather than them proving that we do have weapons, they want us to prove that we don't have. I don't know how you can prove the negative. And obviously, I'm, I, I know that the US knows pretty well that Iran does, does not have nuclear weapons and does not have the intention to develop nuclear weapons at this point. Uh, it's just an excuse. And the next excuse would be like human rights violations or, I don't know, missiles productions and everything. But um, I would say just uh, look at how Iran has been actually, or Iranians uh, and Iran have been uh, a victim of terrorism. Uh, there is this notorious terrorist cult, the MEK, which uh, existed before the revolution and they were against the Pahlavis, but as soon as the Islamic Revolution, the Popular Revolution won. They sided with Saddam Hussein to fight against their own citizens, like uh, compatriots and Iranians, and they killed Iranians. They have assassinated more than 17,000 Iranians. They have been trained in Nevada. This is uh, this was an article a few years ago by Seymour Hirsch, which shows how um, CIA and FBI trained these terrorists uh, in Nevada to carry out assassinations of nuclear scientists inside Iran. And by the way, that's when this terrorist group was still on the terrorist organization list of the US and European Union, because later they removed them from the, the list because they wanted to facilitate the funding and the moving of these uh, people. And they also have troll farms in Albania where their camp is. Um, and uh, it's very interesting to know that the MEK uh, organization is hated by Iranians of any political orientations, any religious or whether they are pro-government or against the government, there is no one except the cult members that like this organization. So we have been for a very long time a victim of um, of terrorism. Our very popular general, General Soleimani, was assassinated by the U.S. government by Trump uh, in Iraq on a diplomatic mission, which, by the way, uh, he was in Iraq to um, facilitate rapprochement between Saudi Arabia and Iran when he was uh, assassinated. So, and he was very popular. Uh, you have to see the images of his funeral inside Iran, which are, according to reports, the 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 biggest funeral ever recorded in history. The images are. Sure. It's just it's, it's really amazing. Yeah. So I think if you look at how this country has been a victim of terrorism and how like General Soleimani and the Iranian forces have fought ISIS in Iraq and in Syria, how we have repelled terrorist activities inside Iran, which were some of them were uh, armed and uh, like endorsed by Saudi Arabia, some of them by ISIS, some of them by the US and some, I mean, we also have the uh, MEK and how Iran has repelled all of them. I think it becomes easier to understand how this country has been uh, a victim of terrorism and not a sponsor of terrorism. Uh, I should, this is like an interesting, uh, uh, I would say, uh, observation that uh, just uh, 
two days ago on uh, on Friday, I attended the Goats Day rally in Esfahan, and then I posted some pictures of the rally on my Instagram. One picture was a picture of a young boy sitting on the grass in front of a historical place with an Iranian flag on his shoulder. And Instagram removed that and said, this is uh, an, an, an a violence and what? terrorism organization or something like that. Yes, which it was like absolutely ridiculous. This is just some guy sitting with an Iranian flag. And then what I did was I, well, I removed that and I received a warning. So what I did was I uploaded the same picture again, but I used hashtag uh, I stand with Ukraine and hands off Ukraine and a Ukrainian flag. And then it was okay. So Instagram did not. <laughs> I played with the algorithm. This is, I mean, this is just so ridiculous. Just this, exactly the same picture. Yeah, that's, I actually tweeted about that. This is just so ridiculous how um, they want to associate Iran with terrorism. But, well, yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is, this is absolutely ridiculous. But it just shows you the extent of the information war that we started the conversation with. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like you cannot post any picture of General Soleimani online or your your account will be deleted or you will receive a warning because he's a terrorist. But you can obviously post a lot of uh, pictures of the, uh, what was this battalion called in Ukraine with Nazi ideology? As of battalion, and it's absolutely okay, and it's supporting Ukraine and the Ukrainians, and it's not terrorism. <laughs> okay. <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, this is yeah. why we need people like you. <laughs> Thank you. I hope, I hope I can. I mean, this is a very massive manipulation campaign and information war, but uh, I really wish there will be more conversation like this. So we, we will learn about how actual life is in other places in the world. Okay, so I can, t- I can tell you who I think is the most famous, the most famous Iranian, Aladdin. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, that's why Iran had to pay uh, reparation to victims of the 9-11. You know that? Because if the U.S. was holding Iranian assets and they didn't know how what to do with it because they didn't want to give it back to Iran. So they decided, okay, Iran is responsible for 9-11 and we're, going, we're using this money to pay the 9-11 victims. How is that related? I don't know. You find out. <laughs> uh, 9-11 was not Iran. It was CIA. But okay, that's a different conversation. Of course. I mean, but even even the alleged, uh, I mean, the, the official story, even in the official story, Iran was not responsible, but Iran had to pay for it. And that shows how the whole story is just made up and how ridiculous <laughs> it is. So many loopholes there and nobody cares. Yeah. Okay, give me some positives. Some positives. Uh, we, Iranian women have more uh, maternity leave, paid maternity leave, than women in the U.S. and in some other European countries. Um, we, 
well, I don't know where where we stand right now, but we had in back in 2011, I remember that we had the fastest growing. Uh, we were the fastest growing country scientifically um, in terms of the science, science productions and uh, in various fields of science. Um, uh, well, in terms of, uh, like, I mean, yeah, I think people can just look up also uh, different places to visit in Iran. And by the way, it's very easy by for the majority of uh, Kind of like nationalities, they can. A lot of people can just uh, get a visa on arrival, or it's pretty easy to get a visa to visit Iran. And there are so many places to visit. Uh, we have um, a lot of like historical places, natural places, um, and tourist attractions that are really worth uh, uh, visiting. Uh, there is this French. Uh, uh, writer Andre Morrow, who said that who can claim he has seen uh, the most beautiful city of the world without having visited Esfahan, where I come from. So I wanted to brag about my hometown too. Um, yeah. So what else? Well, yeah, you have to. Mm -hmm. Because I'm part of BRICS, it would be fairly easy for me to visit. But uh, is it easy for an American yeah. to visit? <laughs> no, unfortunately, no. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know that there is like almost a majority of Americans who don't even have a passport because they don't want to go outside the country. But for the and and the other half that has passports probably wants to go to, I don't know, Canada or maybe New Zealand or maybe Paris. But the, the ones that do want to visit Iran, I really wish there will be more, more, it would become easier for them to visit. I mean, it's possible. I have had American friends who have visited, but it's relatively more difficult than other nationalities, but it's still possible. Yeah, and they can try. So I would, I mean, as an Iranian, uh, I have been rejected visas so many times, and it's so difficult to just travel around the world uh, that I don't think there is, I mean, Americans are not like 25% there either. So yeah, yeah, they, yeah. But I, I believe that Iran has to make it easier for Americans to travel to Iran because, because that, that helps with uh, removing a lot of misconceptions, I would say. Even though I have seen Americans coming to Iran with their own agendas and not wanting to, I mean, you know, with this cultural uh, uh, superior outlook, like, not believing that Iranian women should be able to practice what they want, but thinking that they have to be like the Westerns, uh, like uh, to act like Westerners so that we could call them free. But still, I really like to see more people. Actually, like I think during the protest, there was an NPR, uh, American NPR reporter who was inside Iran and she was reporting, but obviously she just wanted to focus on the negative sides of the story. But still. Which U.S. president has been the friendliest towards Iran? Iran? Uh, <laughs> this is like, I don't think there is. I mean, it's mm. very difficult to say because, uh, because the rhetoric is different. The way they are aggressive is kind of different, but they're all equally aggressive. Mm. And I mean, so, Trump yeah, even... There's and Trump himself still cancelled some agreement, I think. 
Yeah, he he uh, withdrew from the JCPOA or the nuclear deal, but he also he was the president. I don't think he was Trump's decision alone. I mean, the U.S. system, mm. but he was the president when uh, the the U.S. assassinated General Soleimani, and that's why Iranians particularly hate Trump because. It's. I mean, I, I know for those outside Iran, it's very difficult to understand how popular General Soleimani was. Uh, but inside Iran, it's it, it, again, it didn't matter what political or orientation or religious orientation you had. Like everyone, I mean, the majority, the vast majority loved him. You're standing on the battleground of the information war and you're looking out at the horizon. What is it that you see? I th I think I see more people waking up. I mean, it's a very slow process, but I'm seeing more people waking up to the lies that the mainstream media has been telling them. And I'm saying that because during these uh, past few months, I've been on various uh, shows and interviews. And even though when I was on mainstream media, uh, I got a lot of threats and attacks. But when I was on alternative media, there were a lot of people who were like, they were just open to see what someone, an, an Iranian woman inside Iran has to offer. Uh, obviously, uh, I just, I don't represent everyone in Iran. I have my own opinion, but I, at least I live here and anything that happens here directly impacts me and my loved ones and my family and friends. Um, so I think it's, uh, yeah, I think there are more people who want to hear uh, from those who actually live inside uh, Iran or in, in other parts of the world. And uh, so I'm kind of positive about that. How can I follow you? Uh, I'm on Twitter. Uh, and I also have a YouTube channel called Twice Told Tales Podcast, which uh, I host with my American friends. And we have discussions and we sometimes compare what's happening inside Iran and inside America. So, uh, and he, like my friend, Chris, uh, is very helpful in, uh, in helping me understand what, uh, what the misconceptions in the West about Iran are, because sometimes I don't really realize, I, I, I feel like this is like too ridiculous to be believed by anyone. But then I realize no, because there are no mm. uh, other source of information. Uh, there is uh, like there is a need for more information on Iran. And I think something that is easy to forget is that it's not because Westerners are stupid for the most part. It's that if you if you realize that let's say RT and Sputnik are just completely banned. And exactly. uh, the and these the sources of information are highly, highly regulated. That's very true. Yes, I know that there are a lot of very well-intended uh, uh, Westerners who who really want to know more about uh, these things. But there, it's very difficult. I mean, even when you look at independent accounts, like my, I personally, I mean, I haven't. Uh, my Instagram account has been taken down a couple of times, uh, but and I receive warnings and I get mass reports and my account gets locked even though i have like a, a 600 something followers i'm not like a big account uh, but and and the, you know the how they play around with the algorithm not to so like or shadow ban you so not many people get to see what you have to offer like on my youtube channel as well uh, so yeah i i totally understand i think this is um, 
this is very difficult. But at the same time, I think, uh, and and you know, the thing is, like the the capitalist system uh, exploits people, and everyone is so busy from day to night. Uh, just making money to or making ends meet that they don't get a chance to take a break from all the things that are they're hearing so to to try to find out uh, what the truth is uh, but at the same time I think now with uh, so many alternative media platforms and uh, the things it's it has become kind of easier even though the 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 information war is is more intensive the options and the chances to break down those uh, like uh, prisons of information are also greater. And I think people have the responsibility to do that. It's difficult. It's not easy, I know, but uh, everyone has a chance and they should try. Satara Sadeki, thank you for joining me in the trenches. Thank you for having me. It was a great conversation. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit supportgerm.com.